everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, uh, who represents uh, Chicago in the prosecutor's office. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So how are things going in Chicago these days? Uh, Chicago, I imagine, is like many other uh, places around the country, still grappling with COVID-19 and its aftermath, uh, a surge in, in violence uh, from last year that led into this year, and um, dealing with the, the issues related to our country, both macro and micro. So... How have you been able to try to reform the system given uh, the climate of, uh, you know, the increase in shootings and homicides over the last year? Well, I think the increase in shootings and homicides reinforces where our priorities need to be. My efforts around reform have been, let's address the issues of violence plaguing so many of our communities. And a lot of the inputs of the criminal justice system haven't been about violence. It's been about criminalizing you know, substance use disorder or poverty um, and those attenuating issues. And so in the wake of the violence that we've seen, it reaffirms that we need to double down on not being involved in crimes that don't involve violence and being more strategic and thoughtful around addressing violence in our communities. So talk about some of the uh, changes that you've made in Cook County. <laughs> well, a lot of them have been collaborative efforts. You know, one of the biggest things that I'm proud of is around bail reform. Um, just recently, the Illinois state uh, governor signed uh, the Safety Act, which eliminates cash bail here in Illinois in 2023. We have been working on bail reform in the state's attorney's office and with our partners uh, since 2017. And so this is the culmination of all of that work. In addition, you know, we've worked with the legislature uh, last year. Our, our big feat was the legalization of marijuana here in Illinois. And in addition to that, the vacating, the automatic vacating of convictions uh, for people who had convictions for amounts that are now legal. And then, you know, we've been working on you know, wrongful convictions. We have recently announced another group of mass exonerations, which has brought our wrongful conviction tally to I believe 119 cases um, just in the last four years. Cook County has labored under the moniker of the false confession capital of the United States. And um, unfortunately, we continue to see evidence of that and, and have dug our heels in, heels in to make sure that we address it. 
So it's 119 the most in the country? I don't know if it's the most in the country. I know for the last three years, we've led the country um, in wrongful convictions being vacated. So that's 119 total. And uh, I, I think it's more than that countrywide, but yearly we, we tend to take the cake. Um, and a few weeks ago, I actually had uh, Flint Taylor on. Uh, so can you talk about how you've uh, tried to address some of the fallout from the torture scandal? Yeah, you know, Flint has been a long time, long, decades long um, advocate uh, for those who have been victims of the John Burge torture scandal. Our office had been removed from looking at those cases for about uh, over a dozen years uh, because the previous state's attorney and the one before that worked in the administration during that time period. And so uh, the Burge cases are cases that are now just coming back to us. The judge just found that there's no longer a conflict. But in the meantime, we've been really deliberate about looking at wrongful convictions, looking at false confessions. How does our office um, engage with police in, when people are, are brought in and are giving confessions? So it's an ongoing, you know, while so much of that in the past uh, has not been our office engagement, it is making sure that we don't repeat the sins of the past in the future. And I was going to ask along those lines, I mean, you know, it's one thing to be looking back, but uh, in terms of looking forward, how do you avoid wrongful convictions going forward? Well, one, we have to acknowledge our office's role in that, right? I, I, so many people, when they talk about wrongful convictions, just look at the role of police. Well, it, there were prosecutors in the room when the confessions were done. There were prosecutors who presented this evidence in court. And so when you look at some of these old cases and you say there's absolutely nothing that ties this person to this case, what is it about your office that brought these cases forward? So we've revamped our training, particularly having the people who look at wrongful convictions train our new and younger ASAs. Um, we've revamped how we charge cases, you know, not just charging cases that are based on, you know, a single ID. What else is corroborating? Um, so looking at it in the totality, learning those lessons and saying, how do we train in all aspects of our office not to repeat that? Yeah, and I think that was one of the more shocking parts of uh, reading uh, Taylor's book is, uh, you know, you have uh, the police beating and torturing these guys. And then they bring in the state's attorney uh, to get the confession with this obviously beaten and bleeding person. Uh, that's not a good scene there. No, and you know, the other piece now legislatively, all interrogations revolving homicide suspects and most felonies at this point are now videotaped. But it was with the recognition, as I said, that this didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, someone had to bring these cases into a courthouse. And the unfortunate reality was it was the state's attorney's office. And so kind of the flip side, I don't know if it's a flip side, but uh, the other part of this is uh, police misconduct. I know uh, a few years ago, uh, the Justice Department uh, really put the smack down on, on Cook County. Um, how are you guys addressing uh, those type of issues that came out of that? Yeah, if, if by the smackdown, the, the federal consent decree, um, which you know I think many would say was long overdue. And, and the, the truth is, is that we've seen efforts around police reform um, come and go. And, and the hope was that the 
the consent decree would solidify that and have some real accountability. So we've been meeting um, with the Chicago Police Department, with advocates groups, um, with the lawyers uh, to ensure that there's compliance. We're not the monitor on that, but the 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 fact of the matter is is that if our police are not viewed as legitimate, um, it compromises the integrity of our cases. And so we're very much behind the consent decree and really want to make sure that the city of Chicago meets their mandates. So what can the prosecutor's office do better in this regard? You know, what we said earlier, we are not here to rubber stamp the actions of police, right? So, you know, we are, we work together. It's, it's certainly a collaborative process, but it also is one of checks and balances. And I think historically, when we've looked at these cases, it has been kind of a turning of a blind eye or a reaffirmation of bad behavior. What it means for us is, you know, being thoughtful about police officers that we're not going to call who have credibility issues. Um, it means rejecting cases where we don't believe that it's there and knowing that that tension will exist um, and being unafraid and un unapologetic uh, to do our jobs. We are not here to rubber stamp the actions of the police department. So what went wrong from your perspective in the Laquan McDonald case? I think a number of things went wrong in the Laquan McDonald case. I mean, if you go out on the street that night, the fact of the matter is that you had, you know, several police officers who were trying to de-escalate this situation before Jason Van Dyke showed up on the scene. And so obviously, you know, Jason Van Dyke and his decision to coldly and callously shoot Laquan as he was walking away is one big, big chunk. The other is the circling of the wagons around him, you know, around, you know, protecting the police officer who by all accounts um, went afoul of his responsibility. The other piece was the union, you know, immediately going on television and calling the shooting justified. The other piece was the media's acceptance of that explanation without any real interrogation until months later. Um, and then it was the hiding of the videotape and it was the 14 months before charges were filed. I think there were failures, institutional failures in law enforcement from the police, from the prosecutor's office, failures in the media um, and failures all the way up to city hall. I mean, really it comes down to the videotape though. Without that videotape, everybody gets away with it, right? Yeah, in that particular instance, I mean, I the, the unfortunate reality is we also see people who are caught on videotape who also still get away with it. I mean, the, the likelihood of a successful prosecution of a police officer, even in the wake of videotape evidence, um, is, is not high. I, I think in this particular case, people felt that, you know, let this case go to trial, the hiding of it I think elevates, it's always the cover up is worse than the act itself. If, if Jason Van Dyke would have been held accountable, it would have been Jason Van Dyke on trial. What ultimately won, went on trial was our, our criminal justice system. But it, it's an interesting point, right? Because, you know, usually prosecutors lose these cases. And, you know, you could argue that McDonald or uh, uh, Van Dyke didn't get what he probably should have gotten, but you know, you got a, a conviction in a police officer shooting case, uh, which is very rare. Yeah, I mean, the rarity is because the way that our laws are set up allows for police to use deadly force um, 
and, and it's such that they aren't held accountable for it. And so it isn't so much even a matter of will, it is the latitude of force that is allowed to be used by police officers that, you know, the, the subjective standard of when they feel that they are um, at risk allows for this to happen. And it's a really unfortunate reality. But, you know, at least from my perspective, you know, the scary thing is, is that here you have this case, which I think most people objectively can, can say that, uh, you know, the officer acted wrong. Um, in a lot of these cases, it's not nearly as clear cut, unfortunately. And, and then the other issue is that, and how many of these cases um, do you have bad conduct, but you just never get it to the light of day because nobody knows about it and, uh, and the video doesn't surface? That's right. And which is why it then becomes on the onus of, of our office uh, to be as transparent, even if cases aren't making the news or you know, people know about it. We've implemented a policy in our office with officer-involved fatalities where we publish um, when we reject charges on our website in a memo with supporting documents. And, and that's in cases that people have heard about on the news or have never heard about because that transparency matters. Um, we recognize the challenges of charging these cases and the public may not fully understand what that looks like, but you still have a responsibility to be transparent. To, be, to avail yourself to the questions that may come. Um, because you're right, I think for these cases that are high visibility, people can say, hey, that doesn't seem right. But there are far many more cases um, in which someone has been killed at the hands of law enforcement that we never hear about. So how, um, you know, can you walk me through the thinking on a case like uh, Laquan McDonald, what you're looking for in order to be able to prosecute it? Well, at first we start with the, the legality of, you know, is this, was this within the realm of his use of force abilities? And so, you know, we know that police officers have the right to, to use force um, in certain situations. Did this go beyond that? Is this, is this now criminal conduct as opposed to um, something that he was allowed to do? And so it is assessing all of it. You know, was the defendant armed? Was the defendant advancing? Was, from a subjective standard, did Officer Van Dyke believe um, that he was at the risk of imminent harm or death? Um, and then building on all of that. And so that is talking to witnesses, looking at the videotape, looking at the gun. Um, there was a lot of work that was done to assess, you know, the direction in which Laquan was, was walking. All of that to say is, did he act above and beyond or outside of his responsibilities as a police officer? So all of those things come into account. So moving on from uh, the issue of police shootings. Um, uh, so one of the interesting policy uh, changes that you guys have made is shifting away from prosecuting low-level low offenses. Uh, can you walk us through that? Sure. When I came into office in 2016, it, at the time, it was the bloodiest year that we'd seen in Chicago since 1999. And when I was looking at how we were using our resources, you know, the number one referred case for prosecution wasn't guns, it wasn't shootings, it wasn't murders, it was low-level shoplifting. It was low-level shoplifting in 2016 was the number one referred case for prosecution. 
I could not understand how we could justify in a city that literally was bleeding out using our resources to go after low level shoplifting and not after violent crime. So we made the decision to bring Illinois Cook County in line with the, you know, the rest of our region. In Illinois, you could be prosecuted for felony shoplifting for stealing anything $300 um, or above, just $300 in you know, the liberal bastion of Indiana. Uh, it was seven fifty. You know, in in Wisconsin, it was two thousand. Minnesota, it was a thousand. In California, so we, it's nine fifty. Yeah, I mean, it it made no sense. Three hundred dollars, and so yeah, that's ridiculous. Let's be more in line. Let's be in, let's be more in line with the rest of the country because the threshold was so low that gave you a bigger pot. It's not that there were more people stealing; it's that the threshold was so low. So we raised it to $1,000 and we saw a significant drop um, in the number of felony prosecutions. And the following year, gun prosecutions were our number one um, referred prosecution. And it's been that way every year since. You know, the other thing that we stopped doing was prosecuting people for driving on a suspended license if their license was suspended because they couldn't afford to pay tickets. Because it was this really incredibly dumb proposition that we would imprison you, make you pay bail because you couldn't pay tickets. And so while you're in jail, you aren't able to work to get the money to pay the tickets. But if you do get money, you have to pay the bail first. All of this was common sense, right? It, it really wasn't some brilliant like theory. It was how can we use our resources to address violence and stop doing things that are not in the interest of public safety? That was uh, the ProPublica um... Uh, investigative report that kind of outlined uh, the absurdity of how Chicago handled those? Was it ProPublica? Yes. It might be ProPublica. They've done a lot of work on the fines and fees traps that we find. And, you know, the, the thing that I'm proud of is that Illinois last year signed into law the License to Drive Act, where now you are no longer able to suspend people's driver's licenses um, for their inability to pay tickets. And, and one thing I think people need to understand is on, on that issue, uh, it's a big deal because a lot of these people, they, they get a minor ticket and then they can't afford to pay. Um, it increases the amount that they owe and they lose their driver's license, which means they can't go to work. Uh, so then they can't pay anymore. So it's kind of this self-reinforcing trauma. Yeah, it's absurd. It is absolutely absurd. And we know that people are not gonna stop driving. So every time they get into the car, they're in essence committing a crime and, but they're going to work. And that's what we want, right? We, we know that you know healthy thriving communities are ones where people are able to provide for their families. And we have a system that says, we're gonna deprive you from the ability to earn income and provide for your family, but we're not gonna expect any bad consequences of that. It's just absurd. Now, I do want to ask you about uh, the shoplifting because, uh, you know, on the one hand, I, I understand you don't want to be prosecuting a whole bunch of low-level shoplifting offenses. But on the other hand, you know, we just covered this story out of San Francisco where all these Walgreens are going out of business because uh, uh, they keep getting shoplifted and, uh, and the police won't arrest people. Yeah, it's not that we're not prosecuting. We're not prosecuting them as felonies, ah, right? So okay, still that's handled, a big difference. Yeah. yeah, they're still handled at the misdemeanor level, um, just not at the felony level. 
And the, the, what we saw was particularly for these lower levels, you know, the, the companies weren't sending their, uh, their officers to come to court, their, their risk officers, because it took time away from the work. Like if you stole $350 worth of product, you have the product back, right? In order for us to prosecute this, we had to actually catch you in the act. And so you now, Walgreens or whomever now has their, their merchandise back, you're in court and now we're saying, we need you to bring your person into court. Um, and they're like, no, I'm not gonna have that person take off uh, for this. So we were actually dismissing about half of these cases anyway, because the victims weren't coming to court because they were satisfied when they got their merchandise back. And so I believe that there's a way that we can still hold people accountable, satisfy victims that doesn't require the penalty of a felony. Makes sense. Um, so it seems like every reform-minded prosecutor eventually uh, gets called for somebody who's uh, uh, released and then commits a horrible crime. So in San Francisco recently, uh, a parolee uh, ended up killing two pedestrians. Uh, in your county, uh, there was a 12-year-old that got killed. Uh, can you talk about your decision-making for how people are released and uh, also, what's the bigger picture? I mean, you know, we, uh, unfortunately, the media tends to emphasize the bad cases, but they uh, miss all the people that get released and turn their lives around. That's exactly right. I mean, listen, one of the things that we have to do a better job is, is communicating how the system works. The state attorney's office prosecutor doesn't make the ultimate determination of who's released on what. Um, a judge makes that determination. In, in Illinois, we have a risk assessment tool that they use to determine someone's risk. We talk about their background, if they had any missed warrants, any history of violence, and ultimately a judge determines whether that person is released or not. I've been a very big advocate of bail reform because I have seen people who have been charged with horrible crimes, Jason Van Dyke, the, the killer of Laquan McDonald, awaited trial at home because the Fraternal Order of Police posted his bail. He was out on bail. And I've seen people who've been charged with low-level shoplifting offenses who stole $310 worth of stuff who sat in jail for six months. So our bail system has been off, but ultimately a judge makes that determination. And they look at all of those factors. Two big things that you're supposed to look at were bail. Are you a flight risk or are you a threat to the public? And this is not a perfect science. You know, the, the safest thing to do to ensure that that doesn't happen is to keep everyone in jail pretrial. But we know that that's not realistic and it's also not fair. And the truth is of the thousands of people who've been released on bail um, yearly, there's a very small percentage of people who come back um, with a violent crime. And so while it's unfortunate, it's horrifying when we see it, um, it does not negate the work um, that's being done on bail reform. And Taka, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but what does your bail system or your pretrial release system look like right now? So right now we have uh, the chief judge of our circuit court has a pretrial services department and their job is to get as much information around a defendant as they when they come into court. And then they have a risk assessment tool, the Arnold tool that it, they've been tweaking over the last, oh my gosh, four or five years that gives a numerical number to assess someone's risk. Um, and based on that numer numerical number, that information is given to the judge. 
Now that's not the totality. We then say, yes, well, I recognize that this person has been um, seen as low risk. We can talk about their background. We can talk about any specific victim in the case that we believe um, that that risk assessment tool doesn't take into effect. And I know there's been a lot of controversy around risk assessment tools and an implicit bias um, that's found in them. What I can say is, is that there has been a continual and will continue to be ongoing vetting of the tool to assess those hidden biases that we've seen play out um, both here and across the country. You read my mind, because uh, <laughs> that was my next question. Um, but, I, you know, uh, one of the reasons that bail reform actually went down in California is that um, not only did the bail industry oppose it, but uh, a lot of the reform community also opposed it. And so between the two of them, uh, bail went down. So, so in California, we still have bail. Um, in yeah. Illinois, you guys don't have bail anymore. So, um, but I, but I do think you know uh, there's a little legitimate concern that people have is that you know uh, people of color are seen as a higher risk or more dangerous inherently than than uh, white people, and, and that creates a huge uh, concern. Um, how do you address that, though? Yeah, I think we've been looking at the tool. I, one of the things that I'm really proud of about our eliminating cash bail is that it wasn't done in a vacuum. It was, we've, we've been using this tool for a number of years that we could vet it, interrogate it, and see if in fact that was happening. And we did see that we were holding more people, no bail, um, than we were uh, before 2017. But we could also look at who was that population and start to figure out why that person was held now as opposed to before. And the advocates here in Illinois have been incredibly um, present um, in looking at those tools, in interrogating it, and in interrogating the system. And so we know policing strategies are very different in black and brown communities than they are in the broader community. So your likelihood of having contact with police or an arrest record if you're from a certain zip code is higher than if you're from a different one. So how do we, how do we account for that? And I will say that the advocates have pushed, um, and I think to some satisfaction, uh, on the use of the tool and trying to ferret that out. It's imperfect. Um, anytime you're dealing with algorithms, um, it, it will be imperfect. But I think what we've seen over the course of the last several years is that level of engagement and, and why data transparency matters so that we can continually show our work and find those errors and try to correct them. Now, do you have enough data to know like uh, what the difference now is? I mean, how many people were being released before bail reform versus uh, now with bail reform or is it too soon for that? No, actually we, we do have that data. Um, the chief judge, uh, his office has created a dashboard um, that is allowed us to be able to see what the, what the changes have been. So we've seen previously um, before 2017 where this effort started um, in earnest, most people were held on a monetary bond. So somewhere around 55%, um, maybe around 30% were allowed to go on their own recognizance. Since then, we've seen that flip on its head where now the majority of people have been allowed to go on their own recognizance. A smaller amount have been held um, because of cash bond and then a slightly higher percentage of people who've been held no bail. 
And do you have a, a, a calculation for the recidivism rate? So the university, uh, or Loyola University here in Chicago commissioned an independent study where they looked at the first year of bail reform to see if in fact it, it led to an increase of crime or fewer people coming into, uh, into court on their court date. And we found that prior to bail reform, it was about seven, or they found, I should say, 17% um, people who had a failure to appear rate, that went up to 19%, so a difference of 2%. On recidivism rates, you know, we saw that of people who committed new offenses while out on bail, prior to bail reform, it was somewhere around 7 to 8%, um, and it is around 8 to 9% now, so a negligible difference. Um, and, uh, so, so that's not too bad. Um, but, you know, one thing I think people don't really understand on the bail issue is that what you're really talking about is if you have bail, it's not whether somebody's a threat to, uh, commit another crime. It's whether they have the money or the resources to be able to afford to get out. So, uh, you know, two people, uh, commit the same offense, um, you know, even even a $50,000 bail, which is in the scheme of things, not extremely high, you know, that's about 5,000. Somebody was telling me you could get out uh, on uh, even less than that sometimes. But, you know, if you're a homeless person, $5,000 is an impenetrable, ah, I can't talk, impenetrable wall um, and if you're a wealthy person, you know, that's chump change. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the assessment of safety to your ability to access cash is not about safety. It's about the ability to access cash. You know, we, we, we talk a lot recently about Kyle Rittenhouse, the, the young man who shot and killed uh, two people in Wisconsin in the wake of the Jacob Blake ruling. And what's amazing to me is that this man is charged with murdering two people and had access to cash to get out on a $2 million bail. Now, $2 million sounds like a lot for me and for most of us, that is a lot, but they got it. And so the issue is if you issued a $2 million bail because you thought of the severity and the risk, were you not counting on him getting it or should you just have held them? because it is about the access to the cash. That's all that money bail has been about, access to cash. Yeah, it doesn't protect society at all. If I can raise $2 million, I can get out or 200,000 in that case. But uh, I, I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. So it seems to me, if you could find a fair way to, to assess their actual risk, uh, that that's a much better way to do it. Uh, the problem of course being you know, trying to accurately assess the risk. And, you know, one thing uh, is that we really don't know and we can't predict who's actually a danger uh, to society. I was just talking to, uh, to Maury Shama from uh, the Marshall Project. And one of the things in Texas is they do the death penalty based on future risk, which he said we can't actually calculate. So some of this is rolling the dice anyway. A lot of it is real. I, listen, I, this is an, it's an imperfect science. I mean, I've seen cases where, you know, we look at a homicide case, a lot of the cases that we see, you know, the defendant knows their victim, right? There was some personal beef. Like, this isn't someone who is out, I'm just going to murder people. I killed my target. Um, and so 
when they probably are less likely to go hurt somebody else. You may see someone come in on a misdemeanor case um, and maybe has some other issues at play who you dismiss on a, on a low level misdemeanor who comes back and kills someone. Um, and so there is not this perfect ideal person that you can be able to say, aha, I know for sure what you're gonna do because it varies. And I think we have to be comfortable with the discomfort um, of not knowing that. I just wanna circle back quickly uh, to two things we touched on uh, previously. Uh, first, um, you know, can you talk about uh, your conviction review unit and how that's played a big role in exonerating all those folks? Yeah. So when I came into office, as I said, we were known as the false confession capital of the United States. I'd seen a report on 60 Minutes back in 2012, um, where our office was defending a conviction of four wrongfully accused teenagers. And we had a conviction integrity unit in 2012. And so for me, it was incredibly important that we didn't have a conviction integrity unit in name only, that we were really thoughtful and considerate around uh, reviewing these cases, which meant um, even the work of our colleagues um, or our former colleagues, co many of whom sit on the bench now. So we brought in uh, someone from the outside who'd been both a prosecutor and a defense attorney, in fact, spent most of his career as a defense attorney. Um, and came up with new protocols, created an application for people down in prison um, to have their cases reviewed, uh, went down to the prisons to, to deliver them. I really were trying to find a way to make ourselves accessible um, and pull together a team. And one of the reasons that we have so many is that we had a corrupt police officer, Sergeant Watts, um, who was convicted, gone to prison for shaking down drug dealers in one of our public housing projects and nothing ever happened to look at the cases that he touched. And so a significant portion, an overwhelming portion of the cases that we've vacated all stem from Sergeant Watts. Um, you know, I was just looking at uh, the Missouri uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, earlier this week. And here you have this guy and uh, the, the evidence that he was wrongly convicted is probably as, as compelling as I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of cases, and yet uh, the system uh, can't do it. In that case, even the prosecutor was wanting to vacate um, the, the conviction, and the attorney general won't do it, but often we see the problem is the prosecutor trying to hold on to their conviction, and they're fighting these things, and sometimes, uh, you know, you have DNA evidence for several years that shows that this isn't the person that did it and the prosecutor is still fighting it. How do you create the culture in your office uh, to be able to say, look, if somebody's innocent, let's get them out. That's right. I signed on the uh, amicus brief uh, for that case, uh, Lamar Johnson out of Missouri. I think just to deviate for a moment, I think the court's ruling on that is unconscionable. And I think it actually is less about the evidence in that case and more about having the prosecutor come in and say, we need to undo this. Um, and the pushback that Kim Gardner has gotten in St. Louis has been unbelievable. Um, and I think her efforts to vacate this conviction, because this came out of her review of this case and saying, we got to do better, that they pushed back on. But to your, to your broader point, you know, you have to do it by doing it, right? Like you, you have to you have to take it on the chin and vacate a conviction of somebody 
who maybe worked in your office. I mean, what the, the, one of the things that we don't often talk about is many former prosecutors here in Cook County ascend to the bench. Um, I think somewhere around 60% of our judges in our criminal court worked in our office previously. So some of that tension and that hesitancy of looking at these cases is not even that the person still works there, but you may have to practice in front of them. And so that culture of fear of what will happen um, is deeply embedded. And one of the things, one of the ways that we've been able to address that is to just do it. Just we recognize that there will be pushback and tension um, and create a comfort of people seeing that there won't be repercussions um, for you doing the right thing. We have to demonstrate that the right thing comes without reprisal. And then my final question is, you know, um, do you see a connection uh, between the lack of trust of police and the surge in homicide rate? Absolutely. Is that a factor? Absolutely. It's, it's the factor that I don't think we talk enough about. Um, it's why, again, for me, addressing wrongful convictions and police misconduct and the like is so important. For people who live in neighborhoods that have been plagued by violence, um, the, the response is often not to call the police. Um, if you don't trust that the police are going to come and plant drugs or, or, or guns on you, if you don't trust that they're not going to bash your head in um, or do a wrong raid and let you stand there naked, and something happens to you, your instinct will be like, let me do this myself. Let me handle this myself, what we would call street justice. It's more swift, it's more certain. Um, and I don't have to engage with these outside systems that have proven themselves to be illegitimate. And so it's an understandable reaction when you see how these communities that have been most impacted by violence have had engagements with law enforcement. That Those are just facts. It's not this thing that, that people have made up. You can look and see where the highest incidences of police misconduct and community as a result of the consent decree are happening in the very communities that have high levels of violence. And so if you don't work to legitimize the system, to give it credibility, then people will operate in a system um, of their own. And that is what we see in, in instances of street justice. Well, I wanna thank you for coming on today and taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Cook County State Attorney Kim Fox on Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com 
That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.